This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Amy Dunkley. President Joe Biden has been in Europe this week. He made a surprise visit to Kyiv, arriving and spending quite some time there after a 10-hour train journey from Poland. He turned up and there were many shots of Biden and President Zelensky together. It was a very, very strong signal of American support for Ukraine. He subsequently then went to Warsaw, where he spoke with a lot of European leaders. His pledges of support were fulsome, and he said that effectively the United States would be with Ukraine all the way, and that has consumed a lot of news here. And to find out how it went down in the United States. It's a pleasure to welcome Niall Stanich to the stand. Niall, of course, has been with us from the beginning from Washington. He's associate editor of The Hill, a very good Washington newspaper, and he's The Hill's White House columnist as well. Niall, Biden was much praised, not just for his presence and the signal it sent out, but for his vigorous reassertion of America's commitment to Ukraine and their opposition to Putin and Putin's efforts. And he offered all kinds of assurances. He then went off to talk to some of the NATO allies who are closer to Russia and therefore feel that this presents an existential threat, really, given that it's believed that Putin's endgame is a return to the former Soviet Union. How did Biden's visit go down in the United States? I think it was generally praised, Eamon, for its effectiveness or potency in asserting the importance of supporting Ukraine. I mean, the the soundbite, I suppose, from the big speech was this idea that democracy stands and Kyiv stands, that Biden mentioned. This idea that this is not just about Ukraine, but is about uh, holding back or stemming a sort of authoritarian expansionism 
on the part yes. of Mr. Putin. Um, there was also obviously the uh, logistical challenge of getting Biden there in the first place. That had caused a lot of nervousness around the White House and around the Secret Service in particular, that 10-hour train ride and all of that. And that was uh, executed fine in the end. But we understand on that score, mm. and it did, I think, startle everybody that you would take such a risk, that the United States were in contact with the Russians and told them that Biden was coming. Mm -hmm. So there is a back channel there, which was reassuring in some ways and certainly surprising. Yes, that's right. Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, said that the United States had informed the Kremlin about Biden's imminent arrival for what um, he described the Secretary of State Blinken described as deconfliction purposes, which is a fancy way of saying that they were worried about Russia, whether intentionally or accidentally, yes. launching an attack on Kiev when Biden was there, harming him or harming some other member of his delegation. And you would then just be on a fast track to catastrophe of all, of all kinds. So that was uh, avoided. The bigger part of your question, I suppose, is about American popular support yes. for backing Ukraine. And there's no question that that has eroded, just to take one example of that. Uh, a few months after the invasion, uh, one polling organization here asked you know, whether the U.S. was giving too much or about the right amount or not enough aid to Ukraine. The, the proportion that has, of the American population who think that too much aid is going to Ukraine has risen, has doubled, basically, from May 2022 until last month. Now, it's still 26%, so nowhere near a majority, but it does show the creeping skepticism about this, especially among Republicans, who now 40% of whom say that the US is giving too much aid to Ukraine. And there is a Republican majority in the House of Representatives, and our old friend Kevin McCarthy is the Speaker and that is a very powerful position, third in line for the presidency, if something sh should happen to the president. And that rather raises the question of, which appears to be a consensus now, that this is going to be a long conflict, that it's mm. not going to end quickly, and it cannot end, and I think Biden made this very clear, with a victory for Putin. Right, that's right. And so Biden has given this really not only unwavering but open-ended commitment to backing Ukraine. I think the open-endedness of it is one of the things that skeptical rep Republicans pick up on. Now, you and I were talking off-air and I was mentioning the fact that the majority of Republicans still do support aid to Ukraine, but there's a very vocal sort of Trumpian wing, the MAGA people, people like Matt yes. Gates, who are extremely critical of aid to Ukraine and don't believe it should continue. Their argument, at least when you take the sort of just blatantly or gratuitously inflammatory stuff out, is that the open-endedness of the commitment it could have the effect of prolonging the war because the idea is it, it just Im imposes this framework in which the US will back Ukraine forever and Russia will press on forever. And so you will have this extremely lengthy conflict in which no side purportedly has an incentive to seek peace or to make concessions for peace. Now, let me ask you this question, Niall, about Joe Biden and his support 
and what he represents. It seems to me that he represents a worldview that is really dated, which means, I mean, Ronald Reagan held it, who was a Republican, Jack Kennedy was a Democratic president, that America really was, in, <laughs> to use the phrase, the world's policeman. And mm. certainly that in terms of NATO, America is the guarantor, American power is at the West's disposal whenever a threat emerges, such as in Germany. And there's this famous vision, really, from the 1960s of John F. Kennedy, who just visited Ireland, incidentally, stopping and appearing at the Berlin Wall and saying, Ich bin ein Berliner, which meant, you know, I too am a Berliner and we won't allow this to go any further. This was this encroachment by Russia. Mm. That's the past very much. And one sort of has, many people have, in fact, reflected and some have spoken. Imagine what it would have been like if Donald Trump had been in the White House when Putin made his move, Mm. given Trump's hostility to NATO, to the very idea that America would spend blood and treasure fighting yet another wasteful foreign war. The question is, sorry for being so long-winded, but it refers to a time when we all felt comforted by America's support. And we've moved to an America now where Trump is running for the presidency in 2024. DeSantis in Florida is probably the favorite if he decides to run, and there are signs that he may, who would be would not hold that old-fashioned view of America's place in the world. Right, I, I think that's right. Certainly right in Trump's case. I mean, Trump is essentially or instinctively an isolationist. He's not someone who believes in that Kennedy-Reagan type of vision. Yeah, I mean, MAGA itself is make America great again. Does not make, it's not make Europe safe. (laughs) No, it's not. And it is America first, as Trump frequently says. And he takes the view, I think, not only uh, that, you know, sort of foreign adventuring is ill-advised, but that it spends money that should be spent at home. It, It really, his, his, argument basically is, well, what are we doing in these sort of things? It's nothing to do with us, and it doesn't help us. That's why, for example, he has such objection to NATO, which he, I think, sees as uh, other countries basically sponging off the United States. Which they were. I mean, the Germans Mm. wouldn't pay their 2% of GDP for NATO to keep NATO going. I mean, people were actually taking liberties. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, like uh, a number of other things, there's a germ of truth in the idea that the U.S. is leaned on disproportionately for these things. It is the one essential country in many of these coalitions. That means, though, that had Trump been at the helm when Putin had invaded Ukraine a year ago, there would almost certainly not have been uh, the coalition building, for a start, that Biden has undertaken against Putin, but also simply the degree of uh, passion or commitment to that cause. It's almost inconceivable to imagine Trump seeing it that way. And the arms and the money, the weapons, Mm. all of that. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you include both humanitarian assistance and military assistance, the United States has given uh, north of $100 billion to Ukraine since the war began. I mean, that's clearly a massive commitment and one that I think Trump would almost certainly have balked at. Now, given that there is likely to be some way before this conflict ends, although the Chinese have come out in the last 24 hours calling for peace talks and significantly not offering military support to Putin, which is something that the United States warned them against doing. There may be some way to go. Would it be, do you think, an issue in the coming presidential contest? 2024, of course, is when the presidency changes, if it's to change, but there will be, and there are going to be, races to win the nomination, and Trump will be prominent among those who are seeking it. Yeah, I mean, Trump certainly is, uh, Trump and DeSantis are the two favorites for the Republican nomination right now. There's no question about that. It will be an issue if if Trump becomes the Republican nominee unquestionably because of the issues that we were just discussing. Um, Whether Biden gets political credit for the effort in Ukraine is actually a rather complicated question. It's certainly not something that has led to a massive boost in his popularity by any stretch of the imagination. His approval ratings are still rather mediocre and and have been throughout. Um, The the military adventure that probably cost Biden was the debacle of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which coincided with the first slide in his approval ratings. So although I think there's media praise for Biden's performance and there is, you know, Democrats are quite naturally supportive of it, overwhelmingly so, uh, does it really win over voters in the middle ground? Probably not whenever things like inflation remain sizable issues and whenever there's a lot of other domestic concerns playing on voters' minds. Just one thing about the trip. All went well. He he appeared to be in good form. He was vigorous in his speeches and that. He did trip up boarding Air Force One, the presidential plane, when he was leaving Warsaw. This would reinforce, or did it, I wonder, now reinforce the idea of his frailty, both physical and, shall we say, cognitive. I mean, it certainly fits into that narrative. And, you know, the issue of Biden's mental health is a legitimate issue. I think you and I yes. have always tried to be uh, sensitive about it while acknowledging that it is a real issue. He can sometimes seem to lack vigor. He can sometimes meander quite noticeably in comments and kind of seems to be mumbling at times. Having said all of that, you know, his actual speeches in in Kiev and in Europe generally were, I think, generally considered strong. And so the the tripping on the plane steps, it's something that is capitalized upon by people who want to make the broader argument. Uh, And certainly not a good moment for Biden. It's embarrassing for him because all of that kind of thing, like another previous time when he fell off his bike, sort of gets funneled in to this bigger narrative that is, I think, a problem for him, no question. Now, Niall, we learned this week that Nikki Haley, the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations and also former governor of South Carolina, she has declared 
herself a candidate for the Republican nomination for president. She was appointed to her position in the UN by Donald Trump, and she will now be opposing him. It looks like that field may be rather crowded, but we can come to that. Nikki Haley herself is an interesting candidate. She's no fool. No, she's not. She's a very sharp political operator. She often notes that she has never lost an election, and that includes a very challenging Republican primary when she first became South Carolina governor. She was not expected to win that race, and she did. To make a very long story short, she is trying to thread a needle between the Trump people on one side and the actual moderates on the other. Nikki Haley, in fact, wrote a piece about this that'll appear shortly, is not really a moderate. I mean, she's pretty staunchly conservative, but her advantage or purported advantage is that she can wrap those positions in a more uh, affable tone and manner than, say, Trump or DeSantis, who are rather dark figures and often talk in very sort of uh, grim terms about the United States. Haley is a very conservative figure who can cast that in a more positive light. We should also note, of course, she is not only the first female governor of South Carolina when she held that office, she was also the first minority. She is the daughter of Indian immigrants, uh, a point that in itself could be seen as sort of rebutting the charge of racism that is often leveled against the Republican Party if she were to become the nominee. Now, they're all a sensitive issue of Joe Biden's mental capacity Mm. has been raised by Nikki Haley, not just in relation, I think, to President Biden, but also to Donald Trump. And she, Mm. one of her proposals when she announced she was in the race was for mental competency tests for anybody over the age of 75. Mm -hmm. That caused a bit of a tremor well, in Mar-a-Lago, for one. And also I saw Bernie Sanders come out. Bernie Sanders is 81, and I saw him on Newsnight last night. He is a vigorous man with a very well-functioning mind and energy. Mm. He's 81, as I say. But she, when asked about this and told of Sanders' criticism of her, cited him as one of the reasons she thinks a mental competency test is needed. That really is a slur and a, sh- a, a, and a mean shot at a guy who's got a lot more confidence mentally, I think, than most. No, I mean, I, I absolutely take that point. I don't think anyone really sincerely believes that Bernie Sanders is lacking any kind of cognitive ability at all. You can agree or disagree with him. He's a democratic socialist, which is, by American standards, very far to the left. But he's clearly a very mentally sharp person. I was actually at the event in Iowa where Nikki Haley said the thing that you're alluding yes. to. Um, when she said that uh, Sanders had lost his mind in criticizing her for it. And she then added that he is exactly the reason we need it. Uh, She then went on to criticize two other Democratic lawmakers, Dianne Feinstein and Maxine Waters, both of whom are women in their 80s. Um, I mean, on one level, that is, as you say, a fairly mean shot. In another, it seemed to me a fairly blatant attempt by Haley to keep herself in the news and to actually keep 
that controversy going. She does lag Trump and DeSantis in the polls by quite a large margin. And so one of her challenges is to simply keep herself at the forefront. She's accomplished that in part by declaring her candidacy so early. I mean, you know, DeSantis hasn't declared, for example, and is not expected to do so for some time. But these kind of big stories, I suppose, help her in keeping the spotlight on her as she tries to build a bigger following. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now, Niall, tell us about DeSantis. Some of the stuff I read about him is frightening. All I really know is that is unusual or extreme was his attitude to the vaccines during the COVID crisis, particularly in a state with a very large elderly population. Mm. What do we know about him? The reason I ask is when Trump arrived, won the presidency and acted like a buffoon, I think many of us wondered, we may have in a conversation on this podcast said, imagine if some real right-wing hard case took the presidency and wasn't a buffoon. 
Is he that? The point is whether the populism favored by uh, Trump finds a more effective vehicle in DeSantis. And I think it does. I mean, DeSantis doesn't have the self-defeating chaos that Trump brings in his wake. And that's the appeal for uh, DeSantis among uh, populist conservatives uh, or right-wing conservatives. Is he a nationalist now? He is, yeah. I would say he's a, he's a nationalist, and he's somebody who, more to the point, sort of is is sort of plugged into the kind of uh, very um, combative or belligerent approach that is favoured on Fox News, for example, or in other right wing or conservative outlets, where it's a lot of his thing is about sort of culture war issues, sexuality, race. Uh, quote-unquote, wokeness and and things of that nature. Just the point on COVID, because I think that is um, important, DeSantis himself got vaccinated. And then over time, as he saw what way the political winds were blowing, expressed increasing skepticism about vaccines. He won't say whether he ever got a booster shot. And he only very recently uh, successfully called for the state of Florida to impanel a grand jury to look into claims that had been made around uh, vaccines, basically sort of pumping these innuendos into the public arena about uh, false, about conspiracy theories about vaccines. So that is, I, I mentioned that issue firstly because it's important, but also because it is emblematic of his broader approach. Would he beat Trump in your view? I think it would be a very tight race. If DeSantis got Trump on a one-on-one race, I think he probably would, but he's not going to get Trump on a one-on-one race because, you know, Haley's already in and we would expect a number of other candidates to get into the Republican race. The danger from DeSantis' perspective there is that the more candidates there are, the more ways the non-Trump vote is divided, and that's obviously good for Trump. Now, there was a development involving Donald Trump this week in Georgia, I believe. A four-person, a four-man and four-woman, in this case a four-woman, on a grand jury in Georgia about the election meddling investigation, which we've talked about before here. Trump is accused of that, and the four-woman of the grand jury is Emily Kors, and mm. she may have blown the case up. Tell us, what you, tell us what you did. This is an incredibly bizarre little story in the middle of the, the book of Trump bizarre stories. She has, Emily Kors has gone on a media tour. She's a very young woman. She's 30, 30 years old and has given this stream of TV interviews where she has talked in some detail and with a high degree of sort of flippancy about what went on in the grand jury, how other people reacted, who are credible witnesses and who are not. And it's sort of hard to describe verbally just how peculiar some of her appearances have have been. I mean, she's kind of mugging for the cameras on occasion and clearly enjoying the limelight which is all fine and dandy so far as it goes, except that it has been, of course, seized upon by Trump's legal team to suggest a lack of credibility or a lack of seriousness in this grand jury proceeding. And in fact, 
that proceeding is extremely serious, and uh, it is one that has uh, concluded with a report from the grand jury that uh, appears to recommend indictments of some people, though yes. where they haven't identified who. So it's on one hand a very serious matter, and on the other hand there's this sort of very strange little vignette in the middle of it. Right. Now, the the other thing that's happened in America this week that's kind of horrifying is in Ohio where a train crashed, a train that was carrying some very toxic material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a story that is a big story and a growing story here because of a perceived failure on the government's part to react speedily to it. The crash itself happened uh, three weeks ago, uh, and a 38-car train derailed in a very rural part of Ohio, releasing uh, various chemicals. There have been clear environmental effects from that, including the death of thousands of fish in rivers, for example. But more to the point, residents have complained of strange rashes and headaches and other peculiar physical symptoms. There has been a lot of criticism about a sluggishness by the Biden administration to demonstrate concern, even though they did send scientists. It was only uh, Thursday here where Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary, finally appeared. He did so the day after Trump had gone to this community, East Palestine, and uh, President Biden still has no plans to visit. It has become this whole saga basically because a serious disaster has occurred and has at least apparently damaged the health of people who are in a very overlooked, marginalized part of the country. Yes. And the response hasn't been what it might have been. And in the 2016 election, Niall, it is those communities, is it not, that played a significant part in Trump's election? Neglected blue collar, neglected perhaps in some cases with opioid problems and all of that. That that was a part of America that we rarely see Mm -hmm. and that Hillary Clinton would, would rarely visit. That's exactly right, yes. And I think that's really an important point on the politics of all this. This is the kind of community that rightly, to be fair, believe they have been neglected by Washington and the political establishment for decades, probably. And so that is what lends this story of the train derailment such political potency. It's the idea that these uh, neglected or overlooked communities are being sort of dismissed again when there are very clearly genuine concerns. Okay, Niall, we're very grateful to you for joining us from Washington. Thank you very much indeed. We're grateful to Niall, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. 